a breakout quarter for Bank of America, this is Industry Focus. Hello, happy Monday, everyone. This is Christine Hargis for The Molly Fool, and I am pleased to welcome back John Maxfield to the show. Today, we're going to dive into the most interesting story to come out of this quarter's bank earnings season, which is Bank of America. The quarter was dramatically different than previous ones have been for this bank that has really struggled since the recession. Let's talk about what numbers stood out, which ones matter the most, and whether this is just the beginning of a new era for Bank of America, which is, by the way, the United States' second biggest bank by assets. Uh, Let's kick it off by talking about the earnings numbers itself. So quarterly pre-tax earnings were $7.5 billion, which was the bank's best performance since the financial crisis. And anyone that follows the bank knows that this was just outstanding performance. The bank has been really struggling all the way since the recession, reporting downright disappointing earnings in a good half or so of the quarters since 2009. John, does this mark the most, does this recent quarter mark the end of, of a trend? That's that's the question, right? So if you if you go back to 2008 when basically the entire financial crisis started and credit markets froze, Bank of America, much to its chagrin, purchased Countrywide Financial. That was also the same year that they purchased Merrill Lynch. Ever since then, Bank of America has really struggled to not only uh, compete against their better-heeled competitors like Wells Fargo and J.P. Morgan Chase but even to just earn a profit, right? They've had, by my count, upwards of $100 billion in various types of settlements um, and legal judgments. Their efficiency ratio, um, which shows how much uh, money they spend to operate the business relative to the amount of revenue that they generate, uh, has been much, much higher than, say, a Wells Fargo. Um, it's been much higher than a J.P. Morgan Chase. So all of these things have contributed to much lower profitability than you would expect from, to your point, the second biggest bank in the biggest economy in the world. But this most recent quarter, it seems to mark a dramatic departure from Bank of America's post-crisis um, performance. Let's talk more about the efficiency ratio that you just mentioned. So in this quarter that they just reported earnings on, the efficiency ratio was 62.5%, which is getting pretty close to that sub-60% that bank investors want to see. And we talk about this metric all the time. So, John, can you remind our listeners, what's the big deal about efficiency? So the efficiency ratio, what it does is, one way to interpret it is that it is a measure of how much it costs a bank to generate each dollar of revenue. So if a bank's efficiency ratio is 62.5%, which was Bank of America's in the most recent quarter, that means that it costs Bank of America 62.5 cents to generate every dollar of revenue. Another way to look about, think about that is that it means that there's roughly 38 cents left over to pay, to set aside for future loan loss, for future loan losses via provisions to pay taxes and then to either distribute to shareholders via dividends and share buybacks or to allow to fall to the bottom line on the balance sheet and to accrue um, to the bank's book value, to increase the, book, the bank's book value. So it's, critically, it's, it's a critically important metric because in an industry as competitive as Bank of America, and this is something that, that Warren Buffett has talked about in the past, you have to have either kind of a niche assortment of products like, say, a New York Community Bank Corps does, or you have to be a low-cost producer. 
So then when you dig in a little bit further and you look at the importance of the efficiency ratio, it's not just that a bank is spending less money than, say, its competitors to generate every dollar of revenue. But we've also seen that there is a direct correlation, or at least there appears to be a direct correlation, between a bank's efficiency and their underwriting discipline. So whether or not, so banks that are more efficient, that have the discipline to be more efficient, have a tendency to have the discipline to write better loans. And that is really important because, you know, right now, not a lot of loans are going bad. But once the economy, you know, we go into another recession, which will happen at some point in the future, we have no idea when, but it'll happen at some point. When that happens, you have loan losses go way, way, way up. And that is particularly bad for banks that have bad underwriting discipline. So, you know, you're having the operating cost savings, but you're also saving yourself money, presumably, um, on the loan side by having a low efficiency ratio. So do you think that Bank of America is ever going to catch up to some of these banks that are able to achieve a really low efficiency ratio? Um, I mean, you've got your New York Community Bank Corps, which you already mentioned. They're down at like 43% or something in that range. And then you've got U.S. Bank Corps, Wells Fargo. They're in the mid-50s. Does Bank of America stand a chance of catching up to them? So if you talk about New York Community Bank Corps, so that, that I mean, and, and I think, like, like you said, I think their efficiency ratio is like 43 44%. I mean, it's unbelievable, which means that there's just the, the majority of the money that they bring in the front door actually then goes falls to the bottom line or somehow find its way to shareholders. It's pretty remarkable. But it's in a very niche market. It serves principally um, large multi owners of multifamily buildings in the New York City metropolitan area. So what that means is that it can have fewer branches and each loan that it makes is much larger, um, but it still only takes the same amount of people. So they're able to be operate much more efficiently than, say, a Bank of America that has literally thousands of branches spread from coast to coast. But again, to your point, a really a be- much better analogy is a JP Mor- to a J.P. Morgan Chase or a Wells Fargo because these are very similar in, on, a, on a global level. These are similar businesses. They have uh, you know, your investment banking sides, but you also have these large consumer banking sides. And it's the, it's the large branch franchise that requires so much expenses. But we know that it's able to run. You're able to run a network like that much more efficiently than Bank of America has in the past because Wells Fargo has. So then the question is, which is the you know, long way of getting back to the question that you asked me, can Bank of America match, say, a Wells Fargo? Now, well, I don't think that it will ever, maybe, at least not in the near future, say, match Wells Fargo's efficiency because Wells Fargo has been more efficient than Bank of America for many, many decades. I think that Bank of America can certainly get down there very close to Wells Fargo is just because Wells Fargo proves that it can be done. And Bank of America has, despite all the problems it's encountered over the last few years, it's run by, by brilliant people. It's staffed by brilliant people. So there's no reason to think that, look, given the opportunity, once revenue increases relative to expenses, that they could drop that efficiency ratio down to that Wells Fargo level or not necessarily down to it, but close to it. And they seem like they are on the right track. I mean, if you want to pivot to another metric where the bank shined this past quarter, let's talk about return on assets. So that came in at 0.99%, which is just shy of the 1% threshold. What is the big deal about this over under 1%? So this is a, if you're a bank investor, this is a really important threshold to keep in mind. So your 1% return on assets, that means that you know on an annual basis, 
If you take your annual income divided by the assets on a bank's balance sheets, it will equate to 1%. And this is important because most banks are leveraged by a factor of 10 to 1. So that means that you know, when you kind of put that into the math engine and then it kind of spits out a number, that means the return on equity on a, on, on a return on assets of 1%, your return on equity is generally going to be around 10%. It's not going to be perfect, but it's going to be around 10%. And it's that 10% threshold that matters because that equates to a bank's implied cost of capital. So if a bank can earn more than 10% on its equity and thus more than 1% on its assets, that means it's creating value for its shareholders, whereas if it earns less than 1% on its assets and less than 10% on its equity, that means that it is destroying value for its shareholders. So that is a critical threshold. And then the other thing to keep in mind with that threshold is that because it differentiates between creating and destroying value, it also has a tendency to dictate the valuation of a bank's stock. So if you look at a Wells Fargo or a U.S. Bank Corp or J.P. Morgan Chase, all of these banks generate more than 10% on their equity and thus more than 1% on their assets. And all of their shares trade for a premium to book value. Whereas you look at, say, a Bank of America or a Citigroup, who both of the banks since the financial crisis have struggled to return 1% on their assets, both of their stocks are trading for a discount to book value, and it's a direct result, in large part, because of those profitability figures. Really interesting. And one more thing that I, I wanted to touch on was that you wrote this awesome article last week, and I, I wanted to bring it up on the show for anyone who didn't see it. It was called, Two Reasons to Believe That Bank of America Has Finally Turned the Corner. And in it, you pointed out two more ways, which we haven't touched on yet, in which Bank of America really shined this quarter. So let's first look at the bank's legal troubles. Uh, why does that particular trend have you excited? So let me just say that it was an excellent article. Normally, I would not tout, toot my own horn, but it, it, it if was really If you do really say so good. yourself. <laughs> and it's horrible for me to say that. But And, I, and I'm talking to the Bank of America, the current and prospective Bank of America shareholders. If you have a position as a bank, I, I do strongly recommend that, that you read the article. So I can I, vouch for him. It was, it was well done. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> so um, the first thing that I talk about in there is this dramatic decline in their litigation expense. So during the second quarter, you had B- Bank of America had a good quarter on its own, but there's also a development in the legal world. So if you go back to the financial crisis, Bank of America has had, it's been plagued by what is known as representation and warranty claims. These are legal claims that are associated with Bank of America's mortgage business and that whole mess that they, that they acquired with the countrywide financial acquisition. So if you go to, say, a Best Buy, right, and you buy a refrigerator, and that, you bring that refrigerator home, and it, you have a problem with that refrigerator, some sort of manufacturing defect, well, what do you do? Well, you take that refrigerator back to Best Buy, and you return it, and you get your money back, right? Well, the same exact concept applies in the financial industry. So you have banks. What banks do nowadays, and this, this has been going on for decades, is as opposed to, say, originating a mortgage. So let's say I need to, I'm going to buy a house. I go to a bank. I get a mortgage. That bank originates that mortgage, but then it doesn't keep it on its books. It then sells it to institutional investors, either Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, or insurance companies, mortgage, uh, excuse me, university endowments, hedge funds, blah, blah, blah. And if that mortgage then goes bad, and the company that bought that, the institutional investor that bought that mortgage, can then trace it back and be like, oh, well, the origination standards under which this, this mortgage was underwritten were faulty. They will then take that back to the, per, to the bank that underwrote that mortgage and return it. And that's a representation warranty lawsuit. 
So this is what has cost Bank of America literally tens and tens of billions of dollars since the financial crisis. Well, in the second quarter, there was a court case from New York's highest court that said, look, any representation and warranty lawsuit must be brought within six years after the sale of the mortgage or the sale of that asset was made. So what that has allowed Bank of America to do is basically lop off $7.5 billion worth of outstanding legal representation and warranty claims that were existing but were, that had been brought after that six years time frame. So what this allows Bank of America to do is basically put a ring fence around its liability at this point for those types of claims. And because those have been the biggest drag on its earnings, that basically is now freed up going forward. So it is a huge, huge thing for Bank of America. And that is great news for them. The other thing that you mentioned in this Two Reasons article was the uh, the tone of CEO Brian Moynihan. What was it that you picked up on in the conference call? So if you go back, and I listen to Bank of America's conference calls or read their transcripts every quarter, and I have for the past four years, and for the most part, Brian Moynihan has done what Brian Moynihan needs to do, right? I mean, this is a really smart guy. He know, knows way better than I do what, what to do running a bank, right? But he's focused a lot on, to kind of a point we brought up earlier, Bank of America's expenses, because that has really been the bank's problem. So when you, when you kind of look at his comments, you know, you'll have two, three paragraphs of prepared remarks talking about expenses, um, on past conference calls. Well, in this most recent one, he basically only talked about expenses for three sentences in his prepared remarks and then took all that other conversation that he would have been talking about it and shifted that over to talking about ways that it's going to generate revenue, um, hiring new advisors for its branches, investing in technology, and all of these other things. And what was so striking about this was the, the magnitude of the switch. It wasn't, he didn't gradually move over into kind of, you know, a paragraph of expenses, a paragraph uh, of revenue generation. It was basically a wholesale abandonment of conversation about expenses. Um, I, that's a slight over-exaggeration because he did spend three minutes or three sentences talking about it. But then he replaced that with all this revenue talk. So to me, that, on top of that litigation news, could herald, could be evidence that Bank of America has, in fact, pi- finally passed that threshold and put the financial crisis, for the most part, in the rearview mirror. Awesome. So we are almost out of time, but I just want to bring up one more thing because it's so interesting to hear you singing Bank of America's praises this quarter. Anyone that's been following your coverage of the bank, myself included, has heard pretty much nothing but the bear case. You know, Ridiculously high legal expenses, a culture that's shown through multiple past crises to have poor discipline when it comes to credit risk, a bloated expense base, and you can see that in the awfully high efficiency ratio. And all in this extremely competitive industry filled with really well-run banks like the ones we've already mentioned, J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, U.S. Bank Corps. So after all this, Bank of America has always seemed like you would paint it as a second or even a third-tier bank. Has your outlook truly changed, or is your excitement just about this single quarter? You know what? I, I hate to say it, but I think that my outlook has changed. And I know that people say, oh, John's a flip-flopper, but in my opinion... Um, not only have the facts slightly changed for all the reasons we just talked about, but I also spent some time digging into Bank of America's performance in the 1980s. So in the 1980s, he had three successive quarter or three successive years of losing money. And then after that, 
it was able to turn its operations around. So that, and, and just to put that in perspective, even in the financial crisis, Bank of America didn't have three successive years of losing money, right? So if you look back in the 80s, it had these three successive years losing money. And then after that, it not only recovered, but it went on to earning more money than it had ever earned before. And what that made me realize was, was that, look, in a bank recovery from a significant event like this, once the legal issues are cleaned up, once the bad loans are cleaned up, the bank's profitability can literally skyrocket almost overnight. So it just gave me an entirely new context through which to think about what it looks like for a bank like Bank of America to recover from a crisis like the financial crisis. And it just made me realize that maybe I had been overly pessimistic about its future in terms of profitability. Well, I'm going to go ahead and give you another endorsement and say that is the sign of a disciplined mind to take in this new information and revise your opinion on a stock, but don't let it go to your head. <laughs> um, but let's face it. I mean, companies are dan- dynamic. Things change. And let's hope that things can continue to change in a positive direction for Bank of America. John, thank you so much for distilling this past quarter's earnings and pulling out so many great points and having the flexibility to take it all in and maybe revise what you had previously thought about the bank. Folks, be sure to check back in to Fool.com for more coverage on Bank of America and many other bank stocks. As always, people on the program may have interests in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. 